Welcome to your Active Tech Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week we take a closer look at the Digital Services Act and at its first test with the Middle Eastern crisis. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active Tech Brief podcast. Today I'm joined by Rose Jackson, Director of the Democracy and Tech Initiative of the Atlantic Council's Digital and Forensic Research Lab. Hi, Rose. Hi there. We try to make it really hard to say our names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. I um, appreciate uh, the long title indeed. <laughs> so, uh, Rose, what brings you to Brussels? Well, first, thanks so much for having me. I just arrived via train from Paris, uh, where I had flown in for the Paris Peace Forum, as well as the uh, Christchurch Call Leaders Summit that was happening concurrently, uh, and a number of side meetings on trust and safety, artificial intelligence, and global governance issues. Uh, so continuing the fun here in Brussels, here to meet with members of uh, the European Commission on Digital Services Act implementation and civil society partners on the same things as well. Right. And in, in Europe, uh, we have seen in the past weeks uh, the uh, re-explosion of the conflict in the Middle East has brought uh, quite a flood of illegal and harmful content across the web. Wh what was the reaction in Europe as opposed to the uh, US side? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a somewhat confusing moment, I think, because the DSA is, is in force now. And so this is the first kind of major conflict playing out in social media spaces since that marker. Um, and, you know, most people took notice certainly of Commissioner Breton's letters uh, to mostly American, but not entirely American tech companies uh, about content and concerns related to coverage of the, the war going on in the Middle East. Um, but I think for the U.S., it's kind of the continued degradation uh, of of the social media space and moderation. I think for uh, the world, it is looking at how Europe is going to respond and how it might leverage its laws. Uh, I will say that the kind of confusing nature of that opening salvo made people a little nervous. Um, but many of us that work in this space are committed to working very closely with our European partners as well as the European Commission in making sure that it can be a tool to address situations like this, perhaps differently than what we've seen. Um, but I'd point out in terms of what, what it's looked like, there's been a lot more communication on Telegram, which is a space I think the majority of the public isn't paying as close attention to, but then that trans transitions that content into the spaces like X uh, and various meta platforms and TikTok and others where people are paying attention. And so one of the core features really is uh, how you follow an ecosystem, uh, which is perhaps how I justify as an American being here talking to you about a European regulation um, that is focused on trying to build a healthier, more accountable internet uh, that is inherently international in scope and in practice. Right. Uh, you already hinted at some things that could have been improved uh, perhaps what are the lessons uh, you have been drawing from from these past weeks? 
Oh, in terms of uh, how the EU might approach its new yeah. role? Yeah, I think one of the most important things we'll see is clear communication and setting clear expectations of what the public will and will not see, um, as well as having a better understanding in these first steps of what enforcement of the DSA is supposed to look like so that people are able to measure against that what they're seeing. Um, you know, I think having common language, a single place that people can go to to see what the commission is doing at any given time, a sense of whether we're going to see, for instance, the official inquiries that have been sent to companies asking for information, uh, even an understanding of whether that information will eventually be provided in some form to the public. We don't actually know that yet. Um, and the reason I think people are so focused on understanding what we should and shouldn't expect is that we know that what how this works now will feed into decisions being made today, tomorrow, up until February, essentially, of next year on exactly how the DSA is supposed to work. And, you know, I work for an organization that has uh, a global research team. We have people in Ukraine. We have people in Georgia and Moldova, in South Africa, in Mexico, Colombia, and here in Brussels, um, all over the world. I'm not naming every place that we have people. Uh, and that global research team is trying to understand how information flows and how the internet uh, functions everywhere. And it's very important to us that the EU is successful in setting a standard for data access, for how researchers may be able to have consistent ways of peeking behind the curtain a little bit and making sure that the general public uh, and and companies as well as governments have a little bit, let's just say, more even access to information than happens right now. Um, so I think any indications of the kinds of information we might get and how companies are and are not responding will be really helpful uh, for those of us supporting the European Union and its endeavors to help make the information environment better. Right. Thanks, Rose. And I think that also um, gives us an overview that maybe we don't realize so much in Brussels how much global attention the DSA has got, especially from the research community. Um, but I mean, we have discussed uh, the responsibility of the Commission. Uh, what about the platforms? You know, it's, uh, we hear often that it takes two to tango. And uh, uh, I mean, they have, uh, they have a responsibility here as well. And uh, you hinted at the fact not all the data is public, but we are starting to see some data, some transparency reports under the DSA. How do you think the, the platforms are reacting to the DSA and to, as you were saying, the first uh, test of the DSA, which is this Middle Eastern crisis? That's a great question. Um, and I, I hate that I'm often kind of the bearer of bad news. That I sound like a dark cloud, but... Unfortunately, this kind of profound moment of opportunity of the DSA coming into force is happening at the same time that the industry, the tech industry, has just gone through a massive wave of layoffs. And the teams inside those companies that are often called the trust and safety teams have been horribly affected by that, um, which you know, I, to, to add to our doom and gloom scenario here, I promise I'll give you some positive reinforcement at some point. Um, we also have in the next year, uh, 60-something elections in 50-something countries, uh, which, as we know, elections are often flashpoints for some of the worst things that happen on the Internet, aside from the sort of crises like Israel and Gaza. Um, and so we're, we're actually not in a great incentives alignment right now because inside a company, 
you have to think of it as any other workplace that you've been in. Not everyone agrees. Everyone has different incentives and jobs and responsibilities. And the people within a company that are trying to convince everyone else to do the things that we all want them to do, to try and spend resources on finding more of the bad actors, to understand when uh, a foreign government or another actor might be trying to interfere in an election or a democratic process, to spend the resources and time required to make sure that we're keeping digital spaces conducive to women existing on the internet. I can go on and on and on in the examples of the things that we want, but that takes money and attention and innovation. And so interestingly, prior to the DSA, organizations like my own, Honestly, we're working in a voluntary capacity with a lot of these companies trying to figure things out. And there was a fair amount of innovation. Plenty of times that companies did things we didn't like, didn't provide us information that we wanted, uh, and certainly work at cross purposes to some of the objectives we have. But there were also many, many people on the inside who were genuinely building, innovating, and trying to figure out together how to address these problems and to do that with other companies because no single company or person or government can solve these. So what we have right now is this moment where for the first time, these companies are going to be required to do many of the things that they were doing voluntarily, uh, which moves it into a compliance space. And so those of us in the research community are really hoping we can keep engaging with companies and encourage them to make the DSA a floor and not a ceiling for innovation and problem solving, uh, which means making sure it doesn't just become something that lawyers have to check the box on. Mm -hmm. um, so I think how companies are responding is a bit of a mix because the economic downturn means they do have less money than they than they had previously. Some of their incentives to invest that money in the places we want it invested uh, aren't as good as they could be. Uh, you know, we I encourage everyone actually to check out. I'm going to be a self-promoter here that we have a major report that was a task force on the future internet focused on kind of the trust and safety industry, uh, as a trust and safety community within industry. And, you know, one of the things we came through that is like open tooling and the kind of invisible market of companies that you've probably never heard of that build solutions for other companies to do trust and safety work. Whether there's a market for those people and they're supported uh, will matter as to whether or not the DSA itself is successful because we can set a goal that we want something to happen, but the actual question of how in practice it gets done is what starts now. And that needs to be a collaborative process. And so when we take a look at the reaction to, for instance, the opening salvo uh, regarding Israel and, and Gaza, I, I really, really hope that we are able to maintain space for that engagement with companies and that they don't shut down from that initial engagement uh, and move immediately into the lawyer space because uh, then we're, we're not in the best position we could be to solve what are going to be continuing and evolving challenges on the Internet. And just to build on that, um, I mean, you were talking about incentives. Mm -hmm. And usually when, when uh, um, in, in the regulatory space, the, the incentive to comply is the risk of being fined. It's a great do you, incentive. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that at this stage, um, let's put it like that, that, that the commission has to show that the DSA has teeth? I think yes, but I also think it would be a mistake like where you put those teeth first and how how those teeth come out. I have a couple of ideas. Yeah. Yeah, I th I mean I think every like we all could say that it's somewhat obvious that if you you took the current companies and you looked at their practices that X is certainly a mess. I feel fine saying that. Um they've gutted their entire trust and safety team. I they've 
done a speed run of every possible do not do on a platform in the past few months of dismantling what actually had been one of the leading trust and safety programs in the industry, which makes it even sadder, honestly. Um, but I think what's more interesting to me, like you could in the short term, sure, you can go hard against X and feel good about it. But if we're being honest, right, like most of these companies are not in the place we want. And if the end goal is to use the tool of the DSA as an incentive towards certain behavior change, then thinking very intentionally about who, it's not just the who, it's for what. What is the first thing that you go after? And do you do, do you take action in good faith where you're wanting people to change? Do you give them the chance to change? The DSA is actually not entirely clear right now about the exact path that that's going to take. So you mentioned some of the transparency reports that came out. My team's been digging into them. We're going to be putting out uh, quite a few pieces soon. There's one that we did on um, the letters themselves, if that's of interest to people, as well as the kind of initial enforcement steps. Um, but in the transparency report, what is so interesting about what's coming out is it's incomplete. As researchers who know how to do this work, what we're seeing is useful and important, but it almost guaranteed just brings more questions, but they're better questions and they're better questions about where we should focus our time and energy, where the regulators should focus their time and energy. And I think at the end of the day, you know, it's it's tying together that transparency is not just for transparency's sake. It is for some accountability outcome. And I would rather us go a little slower learn more, and then get very strategic about shifting incentives using that regulatory hook than going quick, hitting hard, but missing out on that opportunity to really understand why bad things are happening. Because if we're honest, we kind of know, but the whole point of this is that the platforms barely know, we barely know, and society barely knows. And that's not a good place to be in when we live our lives online. Agreed. Um, I, I don't want to discuss uh, specific companies, but since you mentioned X... <laughs> I opened the door, it's uh, okay. You opened the door, yeah. Former Twitter, of course. Um, <laughs> do you think that the fact that uh, X moved from being a leading player to the black ship <laughs> also uh, led to a general downgrading of the industry standards because what platforms don't want is mm -hmm. to be singled out. And I mean, before X, Facebook yes. had a lot of pressure and <laughs> yeah. Instagram with Francis Ogan. And now no one is talking about Facebook and Instagram anymore. And they barely have to do a little better than <laughs> X, not to be singled out. Yeah. So, yeah, from, from an industry perspective, do you think this brought things down? Yeah, I mean, unquestionably, it's not helpful. Again, it happened at the same time as the rest of the industry also laying off staff and an economic downturn that inevitably constricts what companies are wanting to spend on. It's not just trust and safety, right? There are grants to, uh, to organizations, the parties they throw, like they're tightening the belts. Um, but here's where I think this is a really interesting question. So like right now you have the opportunity, if you're looking at even just how, <laughs> how all of the companies even the little bit of messaging that we have publicly from when Breton sent those letters and then when the commission followed up with the formal inquiries, which letters not part of the DSA, inquiries part of the DSA. Um, 
you get a sense there was kind of a different of enga- difference of tone and difference of frustration if you're reading between the lines. And I think that you can understand those companies as making decisions about how much they're going to engage with the commission and how proactively. And it does seem like engaging with the commission proactively and in good faith does buy you a little space. Um, now, what that will mean in practice, we'll have to see. But there is a helpful, I think, slightly up pressure but I don't think that's going to last forever. I think they're waiting to see what this looks like. And so I, I don't, and this is not to suggest that this is a simple question for the commission. This is really complicated and there's no one single answer, but everyone is watching very, very carefully uh, for what this is going to look like and where their interests, where their interests do in fact lie with the commission. Now, I think you asked earlier, like, does a coming out with a strong uh, fine or something, is that going to help show it has teeth? Undoubtedly, there's going to have to be a first. And yes, I think that first is going to send a message. Again, what's the message, right? Is it you have an incentive to collaborate with us and be open? Or is it you have an incentive to make this like as tight as possible, lockdown, do not share information? That like those are two different, very possible versions of what comes from a first DSA enforcement. Um, So yeah, Twitter did not, excuse me, X previously Twitter, the artist formerly known as Twitter, those actions have not helped. And I do think it has taken pressure off and certainly they've become the focus. Um, But I, 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 my biggest encouragement for anyone working in the space is to depersonalize. And I think the other reason that we focus so much on X is because of Elon Musk himself and kind of the stances he's taking. But let's not forget Again, Telegram is this massive space that we aren't paying attention to. TikTok is an incredibly important platform that much younger populations are engaging on and that that's shaping how other platforms are, in fact, creating their own products. Even, you know, Meta is basically copying short form video from TikTok. YouTube is still massively influential and it often flies under the radar because it's part of Google. And Google Maine has a very different business model and conversation happening as a search engine predominantly with 25 other potential massive products sitting under it. Um, and so just a helpful reminder that these are very different products, very different platforms, very different companies with different business models. Um, and so we may be focused on X at the moment, but that in some ways that we don't need to look for the worst or look for the people that are like not trying hardest, because again, these platforms have problems, are ecosystem has problems and there isn't going to be a version of the world where you get to either just like hit someone over the head and it's fixed. That's just not going to happen. So we have to work together to change the system. Uh, and hopefully the DSA is a step uh, and some tools towards that. Right. And, and let's discuss uh, what we have seen coming from the commission so far in this regard, because you talked about personalization. Uh, but I mean, uh, Commissioner uh, Thierry Breton's approach has been very personal, publicly pointing fingers at uh, tech CEOs and flex- flexing uh, his muscles on the DSA. There are some people saying that uh, these initiatives help more his public image than an anti-application of the law. Uh, and also that it also goes beyond the law because uh, at times he's pointing at harmful content rather than uh, uh, taking down uh, illegal content. So what do you make of that? 
Well, first I'll say, I think people did conflate a, a reminder that the letters, again, were not an official expression of the DSA and a reminder that Terry Breton is a politician. And I'm not saying that as an insult. That's a fact. I come from a country where our politics is just patently insane. Uh, so I'm certainly not going to cast stones on uh, the necessity of politicians speaking to their own constituencies and trying to build the case for why the things they're working on matter. Um, I do think that... There is going to be a tension moving into an election period where you have people who need to make that case on a short term basis and you have the requirement of the slow moving, not super sexy process of figuring out how this massive regulation works where we still have a lot more to go. And that tension isn't going to go away. And I think it's going to be on all of us to try and maintain focus on the work and on, you know, right now setting the standards of how researchers do or do not gain access to information. Every single member country is going through the process of figuring out how to make the DSA real in their own country. They're navigating data protection uh, folks and, and regulators. They're figuring out which regulatory bodies are going to be in charge, who and how they're going to work with the rest of the commission. And so not to like to, to depersonalize even further, you know, that's a lot of different political incentives in a lot of different places. So I I'm sensitive to the fact that everyone is going to have to be walking a tightrope in each of their own political contexts to try and get to this shared objective. I hope I really hope that what is deservedly a legacy that Breton should be proud of helping to steward the DSA into existence is not undermined right now by those political incentives before we can really lock in the effect that we want from the DSA and that the world is looking to Europe to get right. Going back to the disinformation aspect of, of the Middle Eastern crisis, um, how would you compare what we are seeing online now uh, with the Russian-Ukrainian war? What are the main differences from, you know, uh, spreading of this information point of view? And, and have we learned something from uh, the war in Ukraine that has been applied uh, to, to the disinformation that we're seeing now? Yeah, I it's it's I should just start by saying so you know, I said we have a team of, you know, 40 to 50 researchers spread around the world. They're experts in everything from, you know, security research, open source investigations to understanding narrative spread. Um, and to a T, all of our researchers working on this, many of whom spent time deeply focused on Syria uh, and other really horrific moments in recent history, they've said that what they're seeing online, the content of what they're seeing, is by far the most explicit, hardest to watch, gruesomest um, ever. And I think on top of that, what we're watching is this, frankly, somewhat bizarre merger of kind of the product dynamics with, with that. So if, um, you know, we, we talk a fair amount on our team about the responsibility of making sure that when people are looking at a lot of really horrible things online, that they're keeping themselves safe and that they're taking care of their mental health. Um, and that's professionals, right? Those are professionals. We had one of our researchers, um, as she was looking through uh, Instagram, doing her work, looking at those various uh, images, 
changed her algorithm such that she was starting to see videos without clicking on them. They were just like autoplaying that were worse than anything she had ever seen researching before. And that means that there are regular people out there who are trying to understand what's going on, who are walking into these conversations with their own context and emotional connection to this extremely horrifying situation. And they're being exposed to some really awful stuff without any kind of pause or thought of it and without any sort of useful resource for managing what the impact of that might be. So that's my kind of number. The first takeaway is that scares the crap out of me. And it speaks to, again, like we can have a political conversation about being mad about what we see online, but we can also then have a conversation about kind of the reality. It's not like anyone sat there at Instagram was like, man, I can't wait for people to see this horrible stuff. Uh, I don't think that they saw that as a potential thing flowing through. TikTok, same thing right now. You're starting to see a company that said it doesn't want any of that content to be visible, trying to uh, trying to enforce that. And of course, creators who are becoming politically activated by what they're seeing, trying to find ways around. If you're not allowed to say the word dead, then saying uh, unalived, people finding creative ways always on the internet um, to work their way around. So we're absolutely seeing, I think, in comparison to prior times, um, different kinds of platforms in use. I had mentioned the Telegram piece before, um, and that's been both Hamas and the Israeli government leveraging Telegram quite deliberately and intentionally as a tool of its information, and then that moving into the rest of the information space. But I do think a, a key difference that we need to call out is that we've had complete internet blackouts in Gaza for large portions of the war. And that makes it very hard, even in an already poisoned information environment that's been, again, without as many people moderating as used to be moderating with less of that pressure happening. Um, and in, in two key languages that aren't English, which is something that companies have never been as good at. <laughs> Certainly the DSA transparency reports gave us a little light into how many people speak what languages. Um, but that's already kind of a recipe for disaster. And then if you add into that, that the people who are at that particular moment experiencing the most immediate violence are unable to communicate about it and journalists are unable to communicate about it, that is a really high risk situation for creating more disinformation and confusion. Um, and so I, I wish I could say that we've learned more from Russia, Ukraine. Um, but here's one example where I feel like we start over again almost every time. So in Russia, Ukraine, something that was very, very useful was that the world seemed to become more attuned to how narratives can be used to create the opportunity for real world violence and war. Russia spent months and our team documented this uh, for, for a year leading up to it, spent months kind of creating the narrative drumbeat, forecasting that it was going to invade in Ukraine and then did it. <laughs> uh, governments in that moment took that seriously and ended up confirming that external analysis with their own intelligence saying like, yeah, Russia was planning this. And yes, that thing they were forecasting. Yeah. And those narratives are actually like Russian plants. And this is, yeah, all of that work that we've done that requires traditional media, government, civil society, and everyone to be working in concert as part of an ecosystem. Now in Israel, one of the, the kind of worst moments with Israel-Gaza's Gaza conflict was when the first hospital was bombed. 
And without anyone having even a remote amount of time to do the necessary work to find out what happened, the New York Times was one of the first publications that said publicly Israel had done this. And after they did that, it kind of didn't matter what reality was. It then became a, a political posturing for position, uh, which does not help efforts at keeping the pace and uh, kind of rush to judgment down in what's going to be a long conflict. And that's something that we know. We've known for a long time. And yet it's so hard to even get an entity as well established and funded and as expert as the New York Times in that moment. I'm. This is not me trying to attack the New York Times. I'm just saying this is a point that if they struggled to get that right, what we expect of thousands of different outlets around the world, no, I don't think we learned as much as we could have from Russia, Ukraine. But I do think we should be looking at some of how we have centered an understanding of the information environment in the conflict uh, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That is something that I wish we universalized a little bit more, how seriously we take it, how coordinated we are around it. Um, but undoubtedly, Gaza is a different story in resources, in the way that the world is looking at it. Uh, there are far more people split within countries about where they come down on the question of Israel and Gaza than there are split, at least in the United States and outside of some of the areas of Europe uh, that Russia is trying to actively um, <laughs> engage with uh, far fewer folks around the world that are sympathetic to Russia uh, than you will find equally split between Gaza and Israel. And I think that automatically makes an information environment more complicated. Rose Jackson is the director of the Democracy and Tech Initiative of the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. Now you have to say it five times fast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. And uh, I I hope we can be back sometime too. I hope so too. Thank you. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, publish on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Avi Chiori. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi, and thank you for listening.